evidence and answers. Do humans become angels after death? Are the wicked annihilated in the afterlife? Doesn't the Bible teach reincarnation? There's a lot of confusion about the afterlife. You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is a popular teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Each week, Pat and his friends provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ. This week, we will continue on with part two of a message Dr. Ron Rhodes started the last time we were together entitled, False Views on the Afterlife, taken from our recent Hawaii Apologetics Conference. Each year, Pat hosts this conference, which features some of the premier Christian scholars from around this nation. Our theme this year was Evidence of Life Beyond the Grave and featured keynote Christian scholars, Dr. Ron Rhodes and Dr. Gary Habermas. Here's Dr. Rhodes with the conclusion to this message. The resurrection from the dead. And at that moment, that spirit re-entered that body and was resurrected. It's a glorious thing, but that's another topic for another day. The important thing to understand is that Jesus is actually providing proof for the idea that at the moment of death, your spirit leaves the body. The same thing is true of Stephen. Stephen was dying after being stoned, and he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. You see, he he knew that he was dying. He was being stoned. And as he was dying, I mean, he committed the immaterial part of his being, his inner being, his spirit, his soul, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he knew that in just moments, his spirit would depart from the body and go to be with the Lord in heaven. Now what that means practically for you and me is that when we see a loved one die, whether it's your mother or your father or perhaps a young one, at the moment of death, the bodily functions do cease. But at that moment, the spirit is departing from the body. And I believe, according to the Gospel of Luke, that there are angels there that escort you straight into heaven. You see, now, I don't know how many of you have lost loved ones, uh, you know, in terms of mothers and fathers or little children. I was with both my mother and my father when they died. I was holding their hands the moment that they died. And in my uh, father's case, I walked into him, his room about every uh, hour or so, and every hour his arms were raised to heaven, saying, Lord, take me. And his body got weaker and weaker. And there came that moment when his bodily functions ceased. But it was at that moment, I am absolutely sure that his spirit departed from the body. And there were angels that escorted him straight to heaven. Same thing with my mom. I was with my mom when she died and she was in bed. Her body was getting weaker and weaker. And then she suddenly turned to us with a look on her face like she had just heard a voice. And she said, I'm going to die now. And she was gone. Right there. It's almost like the Lord said to her, Now is your time. Her spirit departed the body and went straight to heaven. That's what the text indicates. And so, from a practical standpoint, this gives us that hope you know, that hope that once we die, we are instantly with the Lord spiritually, and we look forward to that day when we're going to receive the body upgrade, which is a resurrection body. Now, no wonder the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 8, We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Notice he does not say that to be absent from this body is to be clothed with a temporary body. He says that to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. And it's in that very context that the word naked is used. 
The soul has a sense of nakedness for a time, being unclothed from a physical body. That's what the text indicates. Again, this separation of the spirit from the physical body is only temporary. You know, you and I were created as physical beings, and we will one day get that resurrection body. The point of victory must come at the point of defeat. Our body dies and goes into the ground, but Christ will raise it from the dead. And the basis for saying that is Christ himself is risen. Amen? Christ is risen, and for that reason, you and I will be risen as well. Resurrected believers will live forever in the immediate presence of Christ. Resurrected unbelievers will spend eternity in a place that Scripture calls the lake of fire. And again, I take no joy in speaking of that, but it is a clear biblical revelation. Now let's consider another viewpoint, and it's looking like my time is slipping away, so this may be among the last topics I can cover here, but it's a view called annihilation. Annihilation. This is the idea that God will not punish anyone eternally in hell. Rather, they will be destroyed or cut off or perish into non-existence. You know, much like those bug zappers where a bug flies into the light and it just kind of blows up and is gone forever, so God will annihilate the wicked. They'll be like a pile of ashes, unconscious. So they're not going to suffer for all eternity. Consciousness is permanently snuffed out. Now, it's often argued that God is a God of love. And as a God of love, God would never punish anyone eternally. And furthermore, it would be immoral for God to inflict any kind of everlasting punishment upon his creatures. Now, I grant you this is a difficult issue. And it's not an issue that most Christians like to talk about very much. But the fact is, we must be faithful to biblical revelation. Do you agree with me? We must be faithful to what the scriptures teach. Now, I believe that this viewpoint falsely assumes that the heinousness of a crime is directly related to the time it takes to commit it. Some of these people say that God would not punish a person eternally for committing a temporal crime on earth. You know, the the time it takes to commit a sin is real short, so why should they be punished eternally? Well, let's keep a few things in mind. There are many crimes that take only a moment to commit, but the crime is worthy of prison. For example, murder. You know, a person could murder another person in just a second with a gunshot, but that's worthy of a lifetime in prison. Now, that's just an analogy. But, you know, it gets worse in terms of the person who violates God. You see, it's one thing to sin against me by shooting me with a gun. It's another thing entirely to sin against an absolutely holy God. The person against which the sin is committed must be taken into account. God is the one who has written his holy law. God is the one who is intrinsically holy and righteous. God is the one who tells us that we are fallen in sin. And God is the one who sets the standards. Now because God is absolutely holy, he responds in wrath to human sin. He could do no less. Do you think it would be righteous of God to simply wink at sin? What if God looked down on a human being who was killing another human being? Would it be right for a righteous God to simply wink at that and ignore it? No, that would not be righteous or just. A holy God would look at that and say, a life for a life. You know, that's, a, that's an unjust thing that just happened. Sin against an absolutely holy God is an absolute violation of deserving of an absolute penalty. Now, this is one of the wondrous things about Jesus coming into the world. Am I right? 
I mean, the fact is, is that every one of us deserve punishment. But Christ came into the world to die for sinners. While we were yet sinners, God showed his love by sending Jesus to take your place and your place and your place and my place. All of us, you see. So even though God is an absolutely holy God with high requirements, you see, he has sent Jesus to die in our place. So he's made provision for salvation. But God cannot simply wink at sin, nor can God just simply avoid eternal punishment. Now, annihilationists often believe that references in the Bible that talk about the destruction of the wicked means that God is going to turn them into ashes and they'll be unconscious for all time. You know, that's really not true. One good example that they cite is Second Thessalonians 1.9 that says that they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. So again, they take this to mean that people will be annihilated. They will be completely turned to ashes unconsciously. Problem with that viewpoint is that the biblical words, whether you're looking at the Hebrew or the Greek, simply does not mean that. The word really carries the idea of ruination. In fact, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are examples scripturally of people being destroyed in the sense of coming to a state of ruination. One good example is Numbers 21-29 that speaks of a people being destroyed in the sense of being sold into slavery. That's how they're destroyed. They're brought to a state of ruination by being enslaved. But in any event, the fact is, is that in eternal punishment in hell, that involves the ruination in the sense that everything of worth is taken away from the person. The word has nothing to do with a person being made into ashes so that they're unconscious. Likewise, the term cut off. You know, sometimes they talk about the wicked being cut off, and that must mean that they're turned to ashes and annihilated. That's not what the word means. In fact, the word cut off is often used in the Bible as a metaphor for death. If I die, they'd say, Ron Rose got cut off. You know, if you die, they'd use your name and say that you got cut off. Jesus himself as the Messiah was described as being cut off in Daniel 9.26. The Messiah got cut off in the terms that he got crucified on a cross. In the Old Testament, the wicked are said to be cut off from the promised land. Do you remember when God made covenants with Israel? Anybody read those covenants lately? Back in Deuteronomy and so forth? Some of you have. See, God promised, if you obey me, I'm going to bless you and give you long life in the promised land. But what did God say would happen if you disobey? He said, you'll be cut off from the promised land and you'll be cursed, you see. So the term cursed or cut off has this idea of death. It does not mean being turned into ashes in the eternal state, you see. So people can be cut off, but once they're cut off and die, they spend an eternity apart from God if they are unbelievers. Now, one of the passages that really deals with this effectively is Matthew 25, 46. And in this passage, it says that the unsaved will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, my friends, I want you to pay attention at this point. I'm not implying that you haven't paid attention up to this point. But I want you to put on your thinking caps with me for just a minute. It says the unsaved will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This cannot refer to the non-suffering extinction of consciousness. If actual suffering is lacking, then so is punishment. Punishment 
entails suffering. And suffering necessarily entails consciousness. It is a simple formula. Again, I take no joy in thinking about the suffering of the wicked throughout eternity. But we must be clear what the biblical text teaches. Certainly a person can exist and not be punished. But no one can be punished and not exist. Annihilation avoids punishment rather than encountering it. Very important stuff. I want you also to notice that the word punishment in Matthew 25, 46 is said to be eternal. This is a word that carries the idea of everlasting, without end. The punishment of the wicked is everlasting, without end. Just as the eternal life of the righteous is everlasting, without end. Both of those are biblical facts in scripture. Also, I want you to notice something that's a, what you might call a corollary doctrine. And that corollary doctrine is that in this annihilation idea where you get zapped out like a bug, there are no degrees of annihilation. Either you're zapped unconscious or you're not. But the Bible seems to indicate degrees of punishment in hell. Does it surprise you to learn that? Our God is a perfectly just God. And just as God will judge all Christians and give rewards or withhold rewards based upon how we live as Christians, so the biblical text also seems to indicate that there are degrees of punishment in hell. Let me just give you a few examples. In Matthew 10:15, we read, Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Some are going to get judged more harshly than others on that judgment day. In Matthew 16, 27, says that the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Some people are more wicked than others. I'm talking about the Hitlers of human history. Some are more wicked than others. And those who are more wicked than others will be punished with a more severe punishment. In Luke 12, 47 to 48, Jesus is again given a parable, and he says that that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. This lays out a principle that there's going to be higher and lower degrees of punishment. Revelation twenty-two twelve. Behold, I am coming soon, Jesus says, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. And this is the judgment of the wicked. Now, because there are degrees of punishment in hell, it wouldn't make sense to say that all the wicked receive exactly the same penalty, which is being zapped out like a bug, and they're unconscious for all eternity. It just doesn't make good sense, biblically speaking. I'll tell you what, it's this truth that really motivates my evangelism. I don't want people to end up there. Do you? I don't want people to end up there. That's one of the reasons I do everything I can to win cultists to the kingdom of Christ. And like I said, I'm overjoyed that virtually thousands have responded so far. Also, let's keep in mind that annihilationism ultimately provides an escape from punishment. For one who is suffering excruciating pain the extinction of his consciousness would actually be a big blessing and not a punishment. So the whole idea of annihilationism simply doesn't wash. Let me cover universalism briefly. 
You know, I wish I had four or five hours with you on all this stuff. We could just really have some fun, couldn't we? Universalism is another idea that's become very popular, especially it's become popular among those who don't like this idea of hell. You know, there's a lot of Christians out there who kind of reinterpret the Bible based upon their wanting to avoid eternal punishment, and universalism is one of those doctrines. Universalism states that sooner or later, all people will be saved. And this position holds that the concepts of hell and punishment are inconsistent with a loving God, and some have even held that Satan and demons will in the end become saved too. Okay, that's pretty far out claims. You know, uh, Let's look at this. The older form of universalism, which originated back in the second century, taught that salvation would come after a temporary period of punishment. In other words, yes, there are some evil people, so they'll get punished first, and after they get punished, then they can go to heaven. So the punishment kind of purges them. It's kind of like a sort of a Protestant version of purgatory in a way. So they get purged by punishment, and then they can enter into heaven. The more recent form of universalism declares that all human beings are now saved, but they don't realize it. And so the job of the preacher is just to get up there from the pulpit and pound the pulpit teaching people that they're already saved. Can you imagine missionaries going out there all over the world with the big message that you're already saved? You don't have to share Jesus with them. You don't need to talk about the gospel. Your message is you're already saved. To me, it doesn't make much sense. But I need to tell you that they do go to Scripture They do go to scripture. Let's just look at a couple of representative passages to illustrate what I'm talking about. Oh, and let me just mention one thing before before I uh, get to there. I want you to know that anybody who wants it can have a PDF copy of these PowerPoint slides. All you got to do is send me an email at roncrhodes at gmail.com. And I'll send you the whole thing. In fact, everything I've talked about this weekend, I will send to you by email. Or I'll have one of my assistants do it. Okay? So that's available to you. All right, let's look at a couple of the passages really quickly. In John 12, 32, we read, and this is Jesus, it says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. All right, is that universalism? Does that really mean that all people will be saved? Well, I don't think so, because right there in the same context, It warns of judgment of those who reject Jesus Christ, the divine Savior. That means that however you interpret John 12, 32, you got to keep in mind the verse a few few verses later that says that those who reject Christ get judged. Scripture interprets Scripture. If you interpret one verse in such a way that it's contradicted by another verse, you've interpreted wrongly. Does that make sense? We need to make sure that we're consistent in how we approach Scripture. So then, what does the word all mean? It probably means all kinds of people, both Jews and Gentiles. Jesus says, I will draw all kinds of people to myself. doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or Gentile. doesn't matter where you're from, but I will draw all kinds of people to myself. Likewise, Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11. We read this. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now the idea here is that because every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, that must mean that all people 
will be saved. But is that really what it's indicating? Is it really teaching universalism, the idea that all people will be saved? Well, I don't think so. I don't think so at all. In fact, this verse assures us that someday all people will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, but not necessarily as their personal Savior. Even those people who are in hell will be forced to acknowledge Christ's lordship over all things. And you must also keep in mind the broader theology of the Apostle Paul who wrote this verse. The Apostle Paul is very clear that in the end there are two classes of people, the saved and the unsaved, with one of two possible destinies, either heaven or hell. You see. So again, Scripture interprets Scripture. If you interpret one verse in such a way that is contradicted clearly by another verse, you need to make sure that you line those up consistently. Why? Who inspired Scripture? It's God the Holy Spirit, right? Does God the Holy Spirit contradict himself? No, he is the spirit of truth, which means that everything he teaches is true. And that means that if you've interpreted one of his statements in Scripture so that it's contradictory to another, somehow you've misunderstood you need to make sure that your interpretation of Philippians 2.10 is not contradicted by the other clear passages of Scripture. What about 1 Timothy 2.4? This passage says that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. Therefore, all people are saved. That's what this argument says. All people are saved because God desires them to be saved. My friends, simply because God desires them to be saved does not mean that everybody is going to receive Christ as the Savior. Yes, God wants them to be saved. He's offering the gift of salvation to everyone. But not everyone is going to receive that gift. You know, Jesus himself was talking to some of his Jewish contemporaries and he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. You were not willing. You see, Christ wanted them. He desired them to come, but they refused to come. In the end, it's like C.S. Lewis said. He said, you know, there are some people that turn to God and say, thy will be done. These are those who trust in Christ for eternal salvation. And they're going to live forever with Christ in heaven. But there are others that God says to, he says, God says to people, he says, your will be done. I've offered you the gift of salvation, but you have refused that gift. You have chosen an eternal destiny apart from me, you see. So again, two classes with two different destinies. Let's just close on this. You know, Matthew 13, 49 talks about these two classes. It says, so it will be at the close of the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. The righteous enter into Christ's kingdom and the evil into eternal punishment. Likewise, with Matthew 30, verse 30, Jesus said in a parable, let both the tares and the wheat grow together until the harvest. And at that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the weak and bring it into my barn. That's kind of a word picture saying that the righteous end up in heaven, whereas the wicked end up in punishment. Two classes of people with two different destinies. Universalism cannot possibly be true. Now, there's so much more to all of this. But here's what it all comes down to. You and I need to be biblical in how we understand the afterlife. There are many opinions of men out there 
But we need to be just like the Bereans are, who tested everything the Apostle Paul said against what Scripture teaches. Now, I want you to notice something real carefully here. Did the Apostle Paul get angry at the Bereans for testing everything that he said against the Bible? No. What did he do? He said, you are to be commended for doing that. Likewise, in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, we are told to test all things and hold on to the good. So here's what it comes down to. I don't care if you're watching TV or listening to the radio or reading a book or reading an article. Test all things against the scriptures. If you do that, that will keep you on the right path. Not just on the issue of the afterlife, but on your view of Jesus Christ, your view of God, your view of the gospel of salvation, and everything else. God bless each of you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. This concludes Dr. Ron Rhodes' study, False Views on the Afterlife. Evidence and Answers is a ministry of the Pacific Apologetic Center, a subsidiary of the Bible Institute of Hawaii. Evidence and Answers relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you would like to team with us, please start with prayer and then to donate. Log on to our website at evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers is brought to you by our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions for more than 20 years. To learn more, please visit their website at hcmlp.com. Join us here next week or on the web for more evidence and answers. <laughs>